It is um, a little bit overwhelming to stand here again and to not be looking at. Um, so just so you know, I'll, I'll, I'll post a picture later. But so we would we would video the the music, but we'd have the the phone set up so you could see the words on our uh, TV screen. And then Amanda would stand beside the keyboard. Hannah would sit at the keyboard. I'd sit on my amp beside the keyboard on the other side. Lily'd be on the other end of the room with her violin, and we had um, this microphone that I normally use to record the message hanging from the ceiling, and it was in the middle of us all. We'd record that. There was one week we recorded, and it recorded slow motion, so we had to record the whole thing again. That was a little bit frustrating. Um, but again, the, the grace that was given, the grace that was shown for us to do that was just wonderful. It was it was hard. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It was hard, but there was, there was something special about it. And then when I started recording the messages, they would all go upstairs, and I'd set up this thing here with my iPad on it with the message on it here so I could read it, and then the camera was above it, so I'm looking at it. I was very professional. Felt felt very professional. Thank you very much. Um, and then I'd stand there and preach to my phone. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> hey, y'all. You know, it's just, it's just definitely, absolutely, positively not the same. Uh, there is nothing in my life that is as blessed and as wonderful as the church assembled. Amen. So it is wonderful to be here. And, and again, I'm, I'm married to a beautiful woman, and I've got four beautiful kids. Two. Well, two, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Two beautiful kids and two knuckleheads. But there is nothing, nothing, nothing that rivals this. And that's saying a lot. It really is. So I am more than excited, more than... This is not disappointing to me. This is not, oh, well, we got to do this, or there's just a few of us. Oh, no, no. To gather this morning and, 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 and to partake of this table and to hear you all singing, it is well with my soul and holy King Almighty Lord. Yeah, this is good. This is real good. So praise God that we are here. Praise God that we have this opportunity. And praise God for his word. As we come together this morning, we gather around the word of God. And again, there's nothing... Nothing underwhelming or disappointing about the Word of God. So as we start this morning, I'll probably underwhelm you a little bit here with, with my opening illustration. Some of you will be tickled and some of you will be like, whatever. Most of you all know I'm a, I'm a pretty avid Star Wars fan, right? I know, right? It's shocking. My favorite Star Wars movie is The Empire Strikes Back. And in that particular movie, we meet, for the first time, my favorite Star Wars character, which is Yoda. Okay? I kind of look like him, right? I got this green thing going across my... Yoda, if you don't know, I'll give you a brief, a very brief overview here. Yoda is a Jedi master, okay, who's in exile. And in The Empire Strikes Back, he is found by Luke Skywalker, who was the main character, who sought Yoda out to be trained in the ways of the Force so that Luke can become a Jedi. And the scenes where Luke meets Yoda and then is trained by Yoda are my favorite scenes in 
the Star Wars. So we've really brought the crosshairs in, okay? Favorite movie, favorite character, favorite scenes with that character, okay? I believe really, I mean, that, it's not just me being a nerd, even though that's part of it. Um, I believe that those scenes where, where Yoda is found and, and he helps train Luke are some of the most powerful in the whole series. And I say that, I think they're powerful. One of those scenes has Luke trying to use the Force. If you don't know the Force, it's, it's, it's like he moves things with his mind, basically. And he's trying to pick up his, his starship, his X-Wing fighter, out of the swamp that he had crashed into when he arrived on Yoda's home planet of Dagobah. It's in this scene that maybe my favorite dialogue in the whole Star Wars series happens. I'm going to read it. I know. So, so, so Luke's, they're standing there, and Luke looks over, and his X-wing kind of drops further into the swamp. And Luke says, we'll never get it out now. Yoda says, so certain are you. I will not do the voice, by the way. <laughs> Yoda says, so certain are you. Always with you, it cannot be done. Hear you nothing that I say? Luke says, Master, moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. Yoda says, no, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. Luke says, all right, I'll give it a try. To which Yoda says, no, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Then Luke concentrates and the thing starts moving up a little bit. And then it sinks down. And Yoda shakes his head. R2 makes a funny noise. They're all disappointed. And Luke sits down and he's tired and he says this. He says, I can't. It's too big. Yoda says, size matters not. Look at me. Judge me by my size, do you? There you go. (laughs) And well, you should not, for my ally is the force and a powerful ally it is. Life creates it. This is new age funky stuff. I don't really like this part. He says, you must feel the force around you everywhere, here between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. Yes, even between the land and the ship. And Luke says, you want the impossible. And he starts to walk away. Then Yoda sighs, takes a deep breath, concentrates on the ship, picks it up with the force, brings it all the way up in the air, moves it over and puts it on the ground. And Luke says this, I don't believe it. And Yoda says, that is why you fail. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's almost biblical, except for the New Age Force stuff, which we don't buy into. Yoda pins Luke's failure on his lack of belief, his little faith. Sound familiar? Well, if it doesn't, it's going to after today. As we look at our passage for today, which comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And again, it's been a long time. But if you can and would, please stand as we publicly read the word of God, the very words of God. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here and there to there, And it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much for this place, these people. Thank you for your spirit. And we ask your spirit to convict us, teach us, equip us, build us up, tear us down. Whatever you need to do today, God. We say yes to you. You are the Lord and your power is perfect in this place. And we ask for it to be seen and known in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So starting in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him, comma, dot, dot, dot. We'll leave it right there for right now. Now, remember wherever you were last week, whatever you were doing when you watched or heard this message, if you did, remember where we left Jesus. And not just Jesus, but his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. They had been up on a high mountain, Matthew had said, where Jesus was transfigured, it's like it's, he was he was unfleshing, and his glory was coming out from his face, and his clothes were bright. And and in the middle of that, Moses and Elijah appear in glory, and they're standing on top of the mountain talking to him. And Peter, James, and John are asleep, and they wake up, and they're like, "Whoa, what is going on?" And Peter's like, "Hey, it's good for us to be here. We're going to build three tabernacles: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah." The cloud overshadows them, this bright cloud, and God speaks from the cloud and says, "This is." my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they're like, oh. And they fell on their face because they were scared to death because when God shows up, you're scared to death. And then Jesus walks over, just normal, regular Jesus again, and he puts his hand on them and he says, don't be afraid, I'm here. And so now they're coming down that mountain. Okay, these four guys, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, are coming down the mountain. Now, anybody ever had a mountaintop experience where you just, man, you just experience the presence of God and it's awesome and everything's great and you're like, woohoo, I could take on the whole world now. And then you come down the mountain. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. And what do they come down to? When they came to the crowd, what crowd? Well, you know, that crowd that always followed Jesus wherever he was. Jesus created a crowd wherever he was. And they knew that he was there and they knew that he had went up on the mountain and this crowd had gathered at the bottom of this mountain. That crowd, that crowd looking for miracles, that crowd looking for healing and deliverances. And Jesus had taken his three closest guys and went up on the mountain and he had left the other nine of his disciples down at the bottom of this mountain that he and the other three had went up. So it would seem that they were left to, these nine guys were left to, tend to this crowd while the hike up the Mount of Transfiguration was taking place. So the nine were at the bottom of the mountain with this crowd. And just a quick note of location. I said last week that Jesus and his men weren't in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, that's, that's about the time that this has taken place. But I didn't say where they were exactly, only that they had been uh, six days prior in Caesarea Philippi where Peter had made his messianic confession and then got called Satan because he rebuked Jesus just a few sentences after that. Well, the Mount of Transfiguration is not identified in the the biblical writing, so we really don't know where this is exactly. Uh, There's been a lot of people, some people say it's near Caesarea Philippi, some say it's Mount Tabor, some say it's Mount Nebo, some say Mount Hermon, some say Mount Meron, we don't know is what it all boils down to, just so you know the, the geography of this. But we do know from Matthew seventeen twenty two, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, that the next mention of where they are puts them in Galilee. So they're either in Caesarea Philippi or in Galilee or somewhere in between there. 
in this time. That's all we know. So um, they're on this near a mountain somewhere in Palestine. That's all we really know. But back to to today's passage. Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down the mountain and to the crowd that is assembled there around the other nine disciples. And as soon as they get there, a man comes up to Jesus and kneels down before him. And like so many who gather around Jesus, this man has a need, and it is quite a need. Verse 15. And this man who knelt down before the Lord said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Wow. What is going on here? This man is asking Jesus to heal his son, to have mercy on his son, for, he says, his son has seizures and suffers terribly. Now the word for seizures in the Greek language is a long one that I will neither bore nor torture you with trying to pronounce, but it's literally translated to be moonstruck. They believe that so much in the physical realm was affected by the phases of the moon. You're like, well, they're crazy. How many times have you said something about, oh, it's full moon out? Talk to teachers, right, Patty? Patty's like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, talk to teachers. They'll tell you there's something about a full moon. And actually, if I remember right, right before all this pandemic started, it was a full moon on Friday the 13th, if I remember right. I'm not a superstitious guy, but... (laughs) But the word for seizures means literally to be moonstruck. And they thought that the phases of the moon affected these people. They literally referred to them, we would, we would literally refer to them as being a what? A lunatic. Okay? But while Matthew references the moon, both Mark and Luke reference this being caused by demonic activity, which could also go hand in hand with the moon thing because they thought that demonic activity increased with phases, certain phases of the moon. We think seizures, and we automatically get medical. The Bible's not so quick to do that. The Bible gets very spiritual when you start talking about things like seizures. Both are right, by the way. And in this case, the spirit and the moon phases are seen as causes. And what are the effects? We're going to, again, we see what what Matthew says here. We're going to look at what Mark and Luke says as well. Matthew says that the man says, have mercy on my son. Okay? Uh, For he has seizures... And he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Now Mark says this in Mark 9, 17 and 18. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples and they could not cast it out. Uh, that they should cast it out, but they could not. And then Luke says this, Luke nine thirty eight and 39, Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So there's a lot going on here with this little boy, this only son. This only child of this man has seizures, suffers terribly, falls into the fire or water. It makes him mute. It throws him down. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. It shatters him, one version says, and will hardly leave him. Now, let me ask you this. As my youngest son walks out to the bathroom, would you want your son to get some mercy if he was going through this? Would you want your son to be healed 
If he was experiencing this type of malady, yeah. I mean, would anybody not want their son to be healed? And if you heard that there was a man who casts out demons and who heals people in your area, he was around, would you not go to him? This guy's looking for mercy, and he goes to Jesus for help, for mercy, for healing. And it turns out, when the man showed up looking for Jesus, Jesus was up on a mountain being transfigured. So the man did what made sense to him at the time, Matthew 17, 16. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. So this man had shown up, he was looking for Jesus, but Jesus wasn't there. So he petitioned the nine remaining disciples to heal the boy. Only thing is, though, they couldn't. It would make sense that these nine were healing, blessing, delivering, and such in the absence of Jesus and the other three disciples. They had been sent out back in Matthew 10 to do just such things. Matthew 10.8 says this when they were sent out, heal the sick. This is to the twelve. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received. Freely you give. So that's chapter 10. Now we're in chapter 17, quite a ways into the future. And I'm sure that they had been doing these things, not just when they were sent out, but as they traveled around, as they ministered to multitudes of people, thousands and thousands of people. So I'm sure they've been doing this stuff. And it was almost maybe old nature to them, second hat to them. Old hat, second nature. There we go. Strike that, reverse it. But here... With this man's only son, these nine guys are helpless. They could not heal him. Now, I don't know if they'd run up against something like this before, but imagine their shock, their dismay, when this guy comes up asking for help for his son and they can't help him. I mean, again, I kind of think maybe healing, delivering, stuff like that had kind of become normal to them. And as the crowds lined up, if they were thinking maybe, okay, let's do this, get it done. It's like a job, you know, okay, next, 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 next. It's not in the passage, but I just wonder if they're thinking this way. Either way, this happens. Dad comes up, describes what's going on with the boy. They're like, okay, bring him up here. Demon doesn't leave. Demon doesn't leave. Demon doesn't leave. Thomas, you try it. Thaddeus, you try it. Judas, give it a shot. Nobody can help him. How do you think they're feeling? What's going on here? You think their faith started eroding pretty quickly? Uh Uh-oh. We've come up against something that we've never seen before. We've come into a situation that we've never dealt with before. What are we going to do? Where's Jesus when you need him? This demon is stronger than us. This thing is bigger than us. This thing is too much for us to handle. And I'm sure they despaired because their efforts lead to failure. Utter, complete failure. The boy's not helped at all. And they kind of pull a Luke Skywalker looking at the X-Wing type of thing moving their hand closer, concentrating harder. I don't know what they're doing. And nothing's helping. And how long had this been? We don't know. The man comes up to Jesus after Jesus comes down the mountain, having already been through this deal with the disciples. And Mark gives us another detail about this. Look at Mark 9, 14 through 16. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, 
What are you discussing with them? So not only have they failed to heal this boy, there's some scribes there, our antagonists in the story, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Everywhere Jesus went, these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees were following him around, trying to mess him up, trying to get him to trip up, trying to watch him fail. And here they are in the midst of this crowd and these nine disciples, and nothing's helping. And they're like, where's your master now? We told you that you were following a loser. We told you that you guys were going to fail. We told you that this wasn't the real thing. We told you he wasn't the Messiah. And what are they doing? They're disputing with them. Now they've entered into disagreement. Sound familiar? Now they're arguing in public about what's right and what's wrong. About whether Jesus is sufficient or not. About whether what they're doing or not is right or wrong. And they're disputing with the scribes on Facebook. They've taken to Twitter. Hashtag, I'm right, you're wrong. And they're arguing. So they've gotten distracted. They can't help the boy. They're discouraged from that. Now they're in a heated argument with their enemy. In public, and I'm sure that they are properly embarrassed. And Jesus shows up, he says, What are you arguing about with them? So the disciples had failed to help the man and his son, and then the scribes who were always hanging around in these crowds looking to trap Jesus and his men in something start arguing with the disciples about something. What are they arguing about? They're arguing about whether Jesus is real, whether their faith is real, whether they're real. And that's when the dad speaks up. And lets Jesus know that his disciples couldn't help his son. So it would seem that the scribes were arguing with the nine disciples about their inability. Which is just adding insult to injury. These disciples, these nine disciples fail. And then they get their failure pointed out and emphasized by their enemies. And that blows up into a full-scale public argument. That Jesus walks into the middle of. I'm smiling underneath my mask, by the way. Jesus walks into the middle of this argument. Which doesn't seem to make things better for these nine dejected disciples because look at verse 17, Matthew 17, 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. So what is Jesus like? It's all right, everybody. Everybody settle down. That's not Jesus' attitude. What is Jesus' attitude? What is wrong with you people? He's not pleased at all with this. I mean, look, this, this is not somebody who is pleased about something. When you're calling somebody faithless and twisted, and how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You say, well, Jesus didn't get frustrated. The heck he didn't. Verse 16 ended with the father saying that he had brought the child to the disciples and they could not help nor heal him. And Jesus answered, I'll do it. No, that's not what he says. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Seems disgusted. He labels an entire generation faithless and twisted after hearing from this desperate father. Now, what's up with that? I brought my son to you. Your disciples couldn't help him. Faithless, twisted generation. He's like, Jesus just overreacting here, is he? I mean, come on. 
But I will say this, what, what's he fed up with here? Let me, let me read those few verses again before this. Now you tell me what's wrong with this. Matthew 7, 14 through 16, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Faithless and twisted generation. What? Well, what's going on here? I mean, this guy's statement seems pretty innocuous. It actually seems pretty proper. Lord, he kneels down, calls him Lord. Seems like the right thing to do, right? But don't forget, Jesus sees inside people. He sees their thoughts, their hearts, what's going on in the spirit realm. And what does he say about these people here? He says they're faithless. Well, why would he say that? Because they're faithless. You're like, well, this guy came to him for healing, right? Listen, these people don't believe in Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He just showed Peter, James, and John just a little tiny bit of that. And he comes down the mountain and his disciples are arguing with the scribes and people are like, oh, can he heal him? Can he not heal him? Are these people for real or for not? Can you please help my son? And Jesus says, you're all faithless. You don't know who I am. You don't know that I'm God of God. God's and king of kings and Lord of lords. They didn't believe that. They believed that he might be able to help them. But they didn't believe he was God. We've said over and over and over again so many times that these crowds were just miracle mongers looking for either personal relief or maybe even a show from the magic man. Now, I don't know that Jesus is exactly upset with this man per se as much as he's really just upset at this whole throng, at this whole situation. That it's just human beings in general missing who he really is. That he's upset with. And these human beings are faithless. Just like you. Just like me. In our natural state. Because we're what? We're depraved. And these people. Being faithless. Jesus also says are twisted. Which means they're out of whack. They're messed up. And these people being faithless are not seeing things clearly or rightly. And just so you know, the word for twisted literally is depraved. That's what the word means. Man, listen to me, man without faith is depraved. Faithless, twisted generation. Faithless, depraved generation. Just like you, just like me. Man without faith is depraved, totally depraved, totally unable to think or see or do right. And Jesus asks, how long is he to be with this unbelieving, depraved group of beings? Jesus had left heaven where he was worshipped rightly as God. He was known fully. Angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory and he comes down to a bunch of us. And he says, how long? How long do I have to be among these people? 
You say, that doesn't sound like Jesus. He's exasperated. Peter had rebuked him a few days ago. May it never be, Lord. And now he's in the midst of all this squabbling and he he wants to go home. How long? How long do I have to be among these depraved people, constantly seeking their own welfare, their own desires? How long, Jesus asked, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? This is God in the flesh expressing his rightful contempt on fallen humanity. And that's all of us, apart from the grace of God. And he ends this verse with, bring him here to me. He's not uncaring. He's going to deal with this oppressed boy. And deal he does, verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Voila! After nine guys not being able to do anything to make any difference in this boy's state, Jesus rebukes, charges this demon to come out of the boy. And what happens when the Lord of Lords speaks? Demons listen. Demons obey. Demon came out. He left. Said the boy is healed instantly. Now, how did they know that he was healed instantly? We've got to reach back into Mark a little bit to get some detail here. Look at Mark 9.20. Then they brought him, the boy, to Jesus. And when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Then jumped to Mark 9.25. When Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. They knew the boy was healed instantly because the demon had shown itself, Mark shows us, causing the boy to convulse and foam at the mouth, rolling on the ground. And when Jesus rebuked the demon, the boy worsened for a moment, then looked dead. Then Jesus took his hand and he got up. So it's a little bit more pronounced than the details that Matthew gives. He's healed instantly. We're like, oh, good. It's a little bit more dramatic scene in Mark. But Matthew did say that he was healed instantly, and that was true. Jesus spoke. The demon left and the boy was healed. And they all lived happily ever after, right? Well, kind of. Verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Um, uh, Jesus, um, uh, hmm. why could we not cast it out? So after all said and done, Mark tells us they go into a house, into the house actually, probably the house that they were staying in in Galilee. And Matthew says that the disciples come to Jesus privately, away from the crowd, away from the scribes, away from the observing eyes and ears. The nine disciples who had been at the bottom of that mountain when Jesus and the other three came down to talk to Jesus and they said, hey, we got a question. Why could we not cast it out? They want to know what's going on. They'd cast out demons before. But this was different. They'd never seen anything like this before. Something was wrong. It didn't work. Their faith, or lack of it, didn't work. Ever found yourself in a situation where your faith wasn't working? Recently? Not so recently. That's where these disciples have been. They said, why couldn't we, why, why, why couldn't we cast it out? 
And they say, why? There's nothing obvious in their minds as to why they couldn't. Why they couldn't do what they'd done multiple times before. Why? Why? What's going on? They, they didn't know. And it's a good question. So Jesus tells them. I don't think they're ready for it. Verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Hmm. Okay then. Wait a minute, what? In answering their question, Jesus diagnoses these disciples with the same problem that the twisted generation had, which is little faith. And just so you know, this is the worst diagnosis that Jesus could give to one of his disciples. The worst. It was the worst opinion that he could give and it was worst for him and for them for him to say this. Why couldn't we cast this demon like we cast so many demons out before? Why couldn't we cast this one out? And then you walk up and you do it like it's nothing. Like it's just another demon. And Jesus said, because your faith is little. What? After all that they had seen and done... After all we've seen and done, Jesus, our faith is little. Yeah. This is the fifth time in Matthew that Jesus has directly chided them for their small or lacking faith. And every time that he does it, listen to me, he does it when he he comes down on them when their faith lacks because they can't see what's going on. They can't see what's promised. They can't see what's up the pike. And all five times now, Jesus chides them for having little faith when they couldn't see what they were wanting or needing. In Matthew 6, it was daily provision, deliverance from a storm in Matthew chapter 8, Peter sinking after walking on the water in chapter 14, and in chapter 16 when they had no food. Jesus chided them for having little faith. And now, here we see him saying it when they can't cast out this demon. It's in the can'ts and the wants and not havings that their faith shrinks. It's at these times when they are past their limits, when they can't figure out what to do or how to do it, it's in these times that Jesus chides them for their little faith. And it was always a stinging rebuke to them. Of all those who should know and believe and exhibit faith, it should be these 12 guys. These 12 guys who had been with Jesus for three years now and seen things that no one in the world had or would ever see again. Their faith should be strong and constant. They're walking with Jesus. Even when He walks away, they know who He is, right? But Jesus exposes these guys here by pointing out that their lack of power came from a lack of faith. They had lacked faith when they needed it most, when Jesus wasn't there with them. When they were face to face with the demon and a kid was writhing and frothing and foaming at the mouth, in the heat of the moment, in the face of the battle, they had disbelieved that Jesus was who He said He was and they had disbelieved that they were who He said they, They were. Try that again. 
They had disbelieved that Jesus was who he said he was. And they had disbelieved that they were who he had said that they were while he was gone. They forgot that the Holy Spirit that they were operating in the power of was the same power that was powering Jesus and his earthly ministry. They didn't see Jesus and their faith proved as strong as their senses, which is really not faith at all. And and then Jesus tells them that it's not necessary to have a lot of faith in order to walk in the power of the kingdom. No, he says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Anybody remember mustard seed from Matthew 13 and the parables there? Jesus said it's the smallest of the garden seeds, but it springs up and becomes a tree bigger than anything in the garden. So a reference mustard seed means that the faith doesn't have to be big itself, but what you place your faith in better be pretty big. And you just need a little bit there. It don't take much to believe in an omnipotent God. And that little bit of faith is so powerful that they can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, now what in the world does that mean? I mean, really? Are we supposed to be talking to mountains and making a move? I wish you good luck and it's not going to help you. What does this mean? What does it mean? Say to mountain, move, it'll move. Nothing's impossible for you if you walk in faith. It's what he said, right? He is calling their attention to the limitless provision for those who will walk in faith, trusting God to do what only God can do. He's calling their attention to God's limitless power and away from their tendencies to look at the natural world only. Anything, listen to me church, anything and everything that God calls them and calls us to be doing, to, to, to accomplish, everything that God calls us to do and accomplish, if we walk in faith, will be done and will be accomplished. Period. And nothing will be impossible for you if you walk in faith at the command and the wishes and the whims of God. Nothing will be impossible. It's not a command to move mountains. Rather, it's an encouragement to walk in obedience and faith, knowing that in and through the power of God, nothing, really nothing, will be impossible that they're called to. Theirs was to believe, to trust in God, not themselves. Mustard seed faith that moves mountains and trusts in the omnipotence of God Himself. Provision, storms, food, waves, wind, demons, none of that will be impossible. Nothing that God calls them to will be impossible. And it's going to be imperative for them and for us that they remember that and that they live it out in the coming days because in a few months Jesus is going to be killed right in front of their eyes. He's going to be in the grave three days. And if they don't walk in faith, they're going to desert him and they're going to be scared while he's in the tomb. Oh, wait a minute. That's exactly what happened. I'm glad this is about them and not us though, right? Shoo. Glad I don't have this problem. 
<laughs> Real quick, if, if you've got a Bible and it's open there, some of you have verse 21, some of you don't. ESV does not include it. And it says that um, it's not included in the earliest manuscripts. And just so you know, verse 21 says, However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. I'm not going to address that full scale because it's not in the ESV. It is in Mark's account in the ESV. So it's not that Jesus didn't say it. It's just that probably the earliest manuscripts don't have Matthew saying it. And we're going through Matthew right now. And if that causes your faith to stumble, let's talk about it. I mean, it's really not a big deal. It's in some, some manuscripts and the earliest manuscripts, it's not there. So we're not going to cover it as part of our passage today. Just, just so you know that. And again, if that causes you to stumble, if that causes your faith to fail, we need to talk. Um, the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is the Word of God, inspired by God. So let's look at application because, yeah, we've, we've got to deal with this stuff too, right? The same thing that the disciples were dealing with, we've got to deal with too. We've got three B's today. Bumps, battles, and belief. Bumps, battles, and belief. And remember, I want you to remember the points, but more important, I want you to remember what you should be doing as a result of these points, as a result of what we've looked at today in Scripture. Bumps, battles, and beliefs. First is bumps. And the the simplest way to say this is there's going to be some bumps in the road of your faith. It's going to happen. Now, again, not quite a battle. We'll get there next. But bumps... The times up on the mountain are few and short in our lives. Life in the midst of a demonic world are more pervasive and more common in our lives. That's just how life is wired. I would rather not have dealt with this virus. Thank you very much. I would rather not be dealing or have to deal with this virus in the future. Guess what? To use West Virginia vernacular, I ain't got no choice. Because it's here. And that's life. That's life in a fallen world. We all want to stay up on the mountain. We all want to see the face shining and the clothes shining and the voice echoing out of the, out of the cloud and Moses and Elijah standing there and us going, this is life, this is great, everything's wonderful, I just love my life, I love it when God blesses me this way. And praise God for those times. Absolutely, positively. And it's not most of the time. It's just not. You say, well, thank you very much. I'd rather have a God who kept me up on the mountain. He doesn't exist. God sends us out into a mission field. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Times on the mountain are few and short. And it's the bumps of the everyday road that we come up against. The annoyances and the constancy of the failings and the fallings and our lack of faith. And oh, do I really believe this? And I wonder, and if, why is this happening? Those are the normal bumps and bruises of everyday life. And that is what is most common. And that's the way that God designed it. Jesus says this, John sixteen thirty three. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have bumps. You're going to have bruises. You're going to spill your coffee. Sometimes in places where it hurts really bad. 
That's going to happen. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus didn't say, well actually, what he did say was, I don't ask you to take them out of the world in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, but rather that you would sanctify them so that in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of tribulation, you'll take heart and have peace. Why? Because he has overcome the world. We want to climb the mountain, right? We want to be on top of the mountain. But so much of life is lived at the bottom of a mountain that we can't seem to move. And we're speaking to it. Move! Move. Move, please. Excuse me, Mr. Mountain, sir, would you please move? And you know what? Who made the mountains? Who put them where they are? The same God that carried you up on top of the mountain and showed you His glory for just a brief glimpse brings you down to the bottom of the mountain and says, now I want you to walk through the valley a little while, then we'll walk up another mountain, then we'll be in the valley for a little while. That's the bumps and the bruises of everyday life. And that's where we live. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. If this virus has done nothing else for me, which it's done a lot, I want to go to heaven, y'all. I want to be with Jesus. I'm tired of living in a world with viruses and sicknesses and failings and fallings and my lack of faith. I'm tired of it. And that's what bumps and bruises do for us. They turn our eyes to Jesus. So don't despise the bumps and the bruises. Don't despise the mountain that won't move. Rather, have peace. Take heart. Why? Because Jesus has overcome this world. This fallen world. Bumps. Now, battles. That's a little bit more intense, right? Big problems. Not just little minor inconveniences, but battles. Demonic battles. Battles with spiritual forces of darkness in the high places. Listen to me. We live in the midst of a demonic world. A demonic world. If you don't think demons are operating out there, you're crazy. Quote me on that. If you don't think that we are in a spiritual battle in our Christian life, you have not known what the Christian life is all about. We are in the midst of a battle every day of our lives. I go back to some of the stuff in Romans that we looked at. And one of my favorite things that John Piper ever said is it's time to put on armor and get out of your pajamas. And boy, is that relevant for today or what? Thank you all for not wearing pajamas to church this morning. Maybe you did last week. That was fine. Not, to, not this week, right? But we are living in a battle. And you know why we fail in the midst of this battle? 
Because we got little faith. We are the other nine disciples. We are Luke Skywalker. And we come up against these big battles and these big problems that we can't do anything about. And our faith withers like a sun in the, like a flower in the evening sun. We dry up and we think, oh no, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'm not who I thought I was. Maybe I'm not saved at all. Maybe God's not even really there. And maybe you reach the point where you say, I don't believe it. And in the midst of this battle, that is why you fail. Peter said this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The world will hate you. The world will slander you. The world will call you everything it can call you to discourage you and beat you down and get you in a place where your faith is in your knowledge, your wisdom, your ability, and get your eyes off of an omnipotent God who has overcome the world. So in the midst of the battle, what do we do? Don't wither. Let ourselves be pushed toward out of the bumps, out of the battles, into belief. Today, church, in our first meeting back here together, the call of the Scripture is toward belief. Belief in what? Belief in the omnipotent God that we sang about, that we partook of the table to worship, and that we sat here this morning and listened to the Bible talk about. I love, and this, here's the call to action for us. Here's what we should do in the midst of the bumps and the battles. I love what this father says in Mark, this, the same father of this same son. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And what a prayer to be praying in these days. God, I believe. I do. And this man had just said, if you can, Lord, help him. And Jesus said, if I can. And then this man says, I believe. But help my unbelief. You know what I would say to you? Confess your unbelief. Don't act like you don't have any. I got some. And I fight it every day when I believe that the world is better than Jesus, when I believe that sin is better than holiness, when I believe that a virus is bigger than Jesus, when I believe that the news media has too much power. It does, but does that make me despair? It should push me to belief. I should bring that to God, confess it, and say, I believe, but God, please help my unbelief. Because you know what? God cares. God knows. And God wants to instruct and help you in this time and all the time to believe in Him. We'll finish with this. Well, I'm sorry. There's one more verse after this. Jesus is about to go to the cross and He tells Simon, Peter, who's this great man of faith, right? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like heat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, I'd never deny you, Jesus. We are going to. Matter of fact, the devil approached me and said, I want Peter. And I said, no, you can't have Peter. Matter of fact, Jesus said, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. And what does the scripture say that Jesus ever lives to do for us? He ever lives to make intercession for us. He knows your faith is going to fail. He knows that you're going to sin. He knows that you're going to disbelieve. Bring it to Him. I disbelieve. Help my disbelief. And He lives, ever lives, to make intercession for us, just like He did for Peter here. So pray about it. Bow Wow says, pray like it. And there's one more thing you can do about your faith to help your belief. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Immerse yourself in the scriptures. Read the Bible, y'all. You've never heard that here before, have you? When your faith is failing, read the Bible. When your faith is small, listen to the scriptures expounded and explained. Cry out for help, understanding by the power of the Spirit who inspired these scriptures. Please help me to understand. Please help my unbelief. And nothing, nothing, nothing is going to help your unbelief more than the Bible. And you say, you say that all the time. Praise God for that. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And the Bible is the very words of God. If we need anything in this dark, hard, difficult, bumps and battles and bruises time, it's the Bible. Nothing is going to help your unbelief like the Bible. So throw yourself into it. Ask God for help. And watch what He does as you stand at the foot of that mountain and makes nothing impossible for you. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much that You are able to do what we are not able to do. God, we thank You so much that Your Word is powerful, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of bone and marrow, to the point that it becomes a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And God, it's those thoughts, it's those intentions that I ask that you would strengthen and equip and build up through your word, through your people in this time as we stand at the bottom of this mountain with our unbelief. Build us up, God. Help us to stay steady through the bumps. Help us to stay strong in the midst of the battle as we believe you for who you are. And we trust you to do what only you can do. We ask for your help and we expect that help because of your glory and our good. And we praise you for it and ask for your strength and deliverance in Jesus' name. And amen. All right, you are dismissed. Don't stay and eat with us, okay?